Hi, I'm Jessica, and when I'm not drinking all the coffee, watching Razorback sports, or hanging out with my family of boys, it's my passion to help elementary music teachers just like you find your unique teaching style. My goal with this podcast is to share helpful tips, strategies, and to give you the motivation you need to gain momentum in your teaching so you can continue being the music teacher rock star you already are. Hey everyone, you're listening to episode 85 of the Elementary Music Teacher Podcast. Today is an interview I did with Annie Rasmussen, and she is the creative brain behind musicpoppins.com. I mean, that name alone is just awesome, so I just got to credit her for that. She's a full-time music curriculum developer and the author of the ukulele launch curriculum, Let's Say Aloha. She runs curriculum test classes in her home-based lab studio in Houston, Texas, and she's obsessed with puppets, folk instruments, and all things ukulele. Her dream is to put music back into the recreation time of kids and their families. And she graduated from Utah State University in music education in 2007. She's taught middle school band and general music, private flute lessons, group and individual piano and theory lessons, church choirs, and of course, lots of ukulele classes. She has two sons and is married to a brilliant scientist, as she puts it. So today's conversation is all about curriculum design and teaching ukulele, two things that I am just excited to have on the podcast because this is something we have not touched on so far in the Elementary Music Teacher Podcast. So Annie is going to just share about her passion in designing curriculum, how she goes about that, what to do if you're passionate about that, and also ways to teach ukulele, but she just really breaks it down and simplifies it in a way that I think is going to really resonate with you. So let's go ahead and get started with today's episode with Annie Rasmussen. All right, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Today, you heard in the intro, we have the amazing Annie from Music Poppins, which I love that name, by the way, that's awesome. And she is going to just start out by introducing herself, and then we're going to jump right in with our conversation. So welcome to the podcast, Annie. Thank you so much, Jessica. I'm so happy to be here. Yes, I'm Annie Rasmussen, and I'm that person who calls herself Music Poppins, and I love my work so much. I'm a full-time curriculum developer, which means I just get to be myself. I just come up with ideas constantly, and then I try to put them into creative order so that they can come to life, and that's what I love to do. That's amazing. I love that. So, what is your experience with elementary music? Have you been in the classroom before or have you always been a curriculum developer and designer? Well, I, I actually graduated from Utah State in band education. Well, it was music education with the band emphasis. Right. I also got ORF training at that time and I taught in a middle school situation. I did general music and band. And then my husband went to the University of North Carolina. We moved across the country from Utah to North Carolina. And I started teaching in an academy and I taught, and then I started having babies. Mm-hmm. So I have two kids and to be home with them as much as I could, I started teaching flute lessons, but also I love teaching flute lessons. So I tried different things. I taught a lot of seminars in the local public schools about like breathing and posture and things like that with with the flute just because I loved to do it yeah and I did some kinder music at that time and then my husband moved us again out here to Texas and when he did that 
I started teaching group piano classes with a company out there called Let's Play Music. I had a great time, but I kind of got to this point where it was like, I needed to be the creator of mm -hmm. curriculum. I could feel it. Like I, it was just something I love to do. I started doing it on the side because all my little students wanted like a summer ukulele camp and I knew other teachers were doing that. And so I wrote my first curriculum and I just, it was a labor of love. And I look back on it now, I actually have a copy of it here. It's so cute. It was a fir good first try. And I, thinking back over my life, it's like I wrote curriculum kind of things in college just like made my assignments. I mean, that was the thing that I did too much work on, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> for, mm -hmm. oh, for yeah. credit. And just kind of always where, where I was always headed. So I haven't taught in an elementary music classroom in a public school. But since then, I've taught in a wide variety of, of like, since college, I've taught in a wide variety of, of settings, mostly here in my little lab studio where I teach classes and test out all my ideas. But I also just, I've done church choirs and I recently retired from that because this is getting to be too busy. Yeah. But yeah, so that's where I come from. Oh, girl, I love that so much. Um, I've had conversations on the podcast before about it doesn't really matter what your degree's in. And what I mean by that is if you have a music degree, music education degree, it can take you a lot of different places. Like that's kind of similar to my story. I did teach in the classroom. I taught elementary music for several years and played for children's choirs. And I still play piano at my church, taught piano lessons, all the things. But like you said, my heart was also for developing and helping music teachers. And it ended up being an online thing that's just kind of taken off. And I think it's really cool, and this is not where our conversation was going to go, but I love it, that you've just followed your heart, and you have just followed your passions and your dreams, and it's just, it's just, yeah, what you're passionate about, you decided to do. Passion is the word. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I always joke about it with other academic friends of mine, because, I mean, with my husband being a scientist, I'm always running into people who are writing a lot of stuff, yeah. Yeah. and I really think that I have a relationship of passion with writing like I am either a hundred percent in love with it or I hate it that day and it's just it's like it's a relationship <laughs> with passion it's how it's what I, I love it so much and I hate it so much that I know it always has to be in my life yeah. <laughs> where it's discouraging it's just because it matters so much to mm -hmm. me and mm -hmm. I want to make but that's true with any anything, you know, even if you're in the classroom, there's going to be days you love it more than other days, you know, where you're like, that's just, I feel like anything that you're, is your calling and your life passion, it's going to sometimes feel like a passion and sometimes it's going to be like, man, I'm kind of burnt out and over this, but it doesn't mean you're, you know, going to give up. It just means you're going to have hard days. You know, I always tell people, you know, we're not robots, we're humans and we're allowed to have feelings and you're going to have days that you're overwhelmed and stressed and days where you're just like, man, I'm just conquering the universe today. <laughs> it just depends. But I would love to continue that conversation about curriculum design. So um, everybody listening to the podcast has heard me say this so many times, but when I started out, I did not have anything, no curriculum. Well, let me take that back. I had old textbooks that when I say old, it was like the covers of them were like kids wearing outfits that kids don't wear. <laughs> anyway, you could tell they were old, mm -hmm. but I didn't just have like something, you know, hey, teach this. And it was overwhelming. And whether, you know, someone listening to this, I know there's several teachers that listen to this podcast who teach K all the way through 12. And they maybe 
are in that situation where they walk in and they're like, I don't know what to do. And it's overwhelming. So I would love to, first of all, ask you for someone who's new um, to teaching, or maybe they're not new to teaching, but they're just struggling with curriculum. Just tell us a little bit about any advice you have around that. About writing curriculum? Yeah. Well, I do think that all those teachers out there who feel a little burned out, it's because they actually really care about the kids and they want to give them something good. And it is so overwhelming to walk into a classroom and not be sure what you're going to do next. I think that's the moment when all of us just channel the college professor that we knew the best and we pretend to be them for that hour and then we go home and we say, oh my goodness, what am I going to do tomorrow? Mm -hmm. Because I feel like an imposter. I think imposter syndrome comes in right then because you were really good at pretending to be somebody else for a little while. And um, that's okay. It's okay. You're going to, you're just going to look at your objectives. You're going to think what is the most important thing that I can give these students in this class. And you're just going to start mapping it out. I, I have like a whole system of mapping things out and putting things in enormous word documents with tables where everything lines up and I can kind of guess where people are going to be on different skills at, on the, at around the same time so that I can have them practicing something that addresses those skills where they are. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just think like taking a deep breath, drinking a coffee like you do, <laughs> right? And then, um, and then just mapping out like, here's where they are. Here's where I want them to be on each of the critical skills that we're trying to get for them this year, this semester. So it's, it's just sitting down and, and doing the work. And mm -hmm. uh, part of the beauty of my job is then I get to go out and test it out. And I think that the most important part of writing your own curriculum or organizing other people's curriculum in a way that you use is then seeing your results as data. My husband is a scientist and when an experiment doesn't work, I, and I saw him go through this a lot in grad school, because <laughs> uh, science is like rolling a million sided die a million times and writing down the number that comes up and hoping that you kind of like, I mean, it's not quite like that, but it's, it can be kind of an emotional roller coaster, much in the way teaching can. But I think that if we just look at, at it as data, like, hey, my objective is to teach the kids to be very careful when they put their instruments away. And today, I found that this particular way of reminding them was less effective, and I'm going to try a different way tomorrow. And not, not letting my ego get caught up in it, just like, this is data. I should write this down. Mm. This, I'm so glad that I tried this so that I can know and try a different thing tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so yeah. good. So a teacher that doesn't have curriculum, I would just, like you said, advise just to start somewhere. Just start teaching and you'll figure out through trial and error what works with your students because everybody teaches different sets of students, different demographics, different kids who are different, you know, learning um, abilities and things like that and different kids that have had music before or have not. And so just starting somewhere and then start with what you have. Like I did, I started with these old textbooks and then you will find curriculum to use. It just takes time to find what your teaching style is. What do you need? What do your students need? And just start like that. Yeah, I tend to start with the basics. Like I think 
these kids are approximately this age old. And so if they're eight, then my maximum amount of time on a particular activity is probably about eight minutes. Mm-hmm. And just according to my understanding and experience, kids today, that might be a bit shorter. So I like to have a whole record, like a list of things that I can try in a class. And then if we happen to be going great on one, I can, um, I can keep it going for a little bit longer, but to have it mapped out. So I kind of think of it like if this class is the only musical thing this child is doing in their life, then what my most important responsibility is, is to make sure that it is suited to their attention span and that it is engaging and fun so that they, we can build from there. Like let's have a good class and not worry too much about, about like, like just meet them where they are, mm-hmm. have a great class, and then keep your eye on like, what's the next thing so that everything flows together. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So I would love to also pick your brain about objectives and activities and designing those. So right along with curriculum, whenever teachers are thinking about objectives to teach, how would you advise them the simplest way to start with looking at the objectives and planning activities when it comes to teaching? Okay, when I was teaching middle school, I looked up our state objectives. This was back when I lived in Utah. They had standards and objectives, and and of course there's the national standards for music education, and they felt so big, and they felt so broad and yet it just felt like those nine standards I did not know how to put all nine of them in a class mm-hmm. and so I had to kind of I, I really do like choral or instrumental like kind of presenting that as as a tool for teaching other things so that um so that the kids feel like they're accomplishing something and then it gives me all kinds of opportunities to include all of those other things. So, uh, for example, right now I'm super focused on developing ukulele curriculum. And the, with the ukulele, what I basically did is I sat down, and I'm not talking about one day, and it, ref- it has refined over time. Mm-hmm. And But I sat down and I wrote out, here are the basic things a person has to do when they write, when they play the ukulele. When... Jake Shimabukuro goes up on a stage and he plays the ukulele. This is a list of the cognitive tasks he is doing. And if, and if someone sits at a campfire and they just play a song while everybody sings, then this is a list of the cognitive tasks they're doing. And these are the, and then I kind of map out the steps to get to each of those. And I don't worry about lining them up at the beginning. It's just more about knowing where my kids are and what the progression is to get there. And then then I start looking at lessons and being like, well, in this lesson, I just wanna really focus on holding it and strumming the ukulele and having a good time and starting to prepare through activities, all the songs that we're going to hit later on in the unit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's basically my method. And I, I'm serious, I have these, <laughs> I feel like this could be a whole, university course that I didn't get to take because (laughs) every university education, they have so much to teach their students who are going to go to a broad range of of Mm. experiences out there. They do a great job on the whole. I loved Utah State University, but they did not have time to sit down 
and say, here's how you do standards-based design. Yep. So when I got to my student teaching days, one of the teachers there handed me this book, Standards-Based Design, mm. and he handed me another one that was like scientific um, studies on different activities, learning activities. And that is basically, that's basically what I got at university. Yeah. But I do think you could just sit down at the table and say, here's lesson one. Here's what I want the kids to know about holding the ukulele at that time. And here's what I want them to know about strumming. And here's a song where they'll do both, but is simple enough that they can do both and enjoy it. Yeah. And then just, yeah. Yeah. It becomes overwhelming. I know um, even in my community, um, I get asked all the time. And so you're right. Every state has different objectives and standards, which to me is kind of mind blowing, but I guess that's the same for any grade level. You know, like my sister is an elementary teacher. And so we've talked about that before, how um, we both come from Oklahoma and now we're in Arkansas and the standards here look way different than the neighboring state, which is like, why? So, but yeah, the national standards, you look at them and you're like, wait, what? And then they got redone, you know, and so now they're even more broader. And so you're like, you're like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? It gets overwhelming, but just sitting down. And that's what I did. You sit down or talk to other teachers, get advice from, you know, teachers who have been teaching for years or a mentor or collaborate with other teachers and pick their brains about what exactly are you doing each nine weeks? And then you break down the objectives. Okay. So this is what I want my, you know, we'll use, well, I was going to use kindergarten, but that's a whole nother world. We'll use first grade. This is what I want my first graders to know. I mean, they are. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> this is what I want my first graders to be able to do at the end of the first nine weeks and then second nine weeks and third nine weeks and fourth nine weeks. And then, like you said, then you figure out activities and lessons that would teach to that objective. And it gets overwhelming when you look at so many songs and so many activities and you're like, well, how am I supposed to get to all of this? Well, you're not. You pick the ones that meet your students' needs and that would best address those objectives and you do that. It used to overwhelm me not being able to get to every single song I had in every single binder and every resource I, got, resource I had gotten at workshop or ORF level or whatever. But then I thought, well, wait, why am I so stressed out about getting to all these songs instead of just focusing on teaching to this objective and knowing this activity is going to reach my kids? I mean, I feel like that's what overwhelms teachers a lot. I do think that a lot of us, because we're really idealistic, we tend to be big picture people to small picture people. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. we want to zoom out and imagine the whole year and that can be really useful. We want to... We want to have some sort of structure in our minds that brings meaning to the activities we're doing that day. But we don't have to have every single step of the way mapped out before we start collecting data in our classrooms mm -hmm. and seeing how things meet the kids. Of course, we want to stay on top of it. Like there's no feeling like not knowing what you're going to do tomorrow. But um, I do think that just starting to collect data and not feeling bad about it when it goes differently than you planned and just being there with your kids being in the moment and learning with them is so powerful when i'm teaching is kind of a crystallized structure like an order of operations it's like i know i need to teach this using this activity before we get to this next activity mm -hmm. i think that's what teachers are looking for and it does tend to feel like a whole full-time job on top of your full-time job 
of classroom management. And so I do think there are a lot of really good resources out there, but I just want to share this idea that I had that just so that anybody who's developing other curriculum or other teachers can have it. Because what I publish right now are hybrid lesson plans. Mm. There tends to be two kinds of lesson plans. And so I've just gone with the, the name hybrid lesson plans. And the one lesson, um, what I mean is there's scripted lesson plans and there's these like totally vague lesson plans out there that are just like, now do this, now right. do this. Right. And like, I don't know what to say. So what I tend to write, I don't want to write lesson plans that are totally scripted. Like the, the, the book that comes to mind is the Engels Teach Your Child to Read in 39 lessons or, or whatever it is. Mm. And I don't want to leave people with my materials, but like no cues. Because I think that behavioral cues that you teach your class are so important. To me, a class is like a little performance for everybody involved. It's a little play with audience participation. And the audience in an audience participation play loves it when they get cues. You think of the classic pantomimes where they they know what to shout back, yeah. right? That yeah. gets a whole brain team. But I do like having like specific cues or the idea, here's a cue for you to say right here so that the kids make this connection right there. So I like having side by side, Here's my little hybrid lesson plan in one of my books. On this side is the lesson outline that is just like, now do this, now do this. These things will come in order and the songs come in order. And here's where the music is and here's the page you'll be on. And then over here is like exactly what I would say and gesture. Mm. But it's like a, a little script. And I don't want any of the teachers to feel like they have to use my stuff, which is, it's, I, I don't want any of the teachers all over the country because I've sold it in various places to go and memorize a whole script for an hour long lesson plan. Like that would be misery. But I do want them, if they are feeling a little bit less confident, to have just a model in their mind of how an experienced teacher would say something. So they don't just have to channel their college professors, they have another model. And so I also put out videos and demo videos and stuff like that. So when I watch another teacher teach, I'm watching them for behavioral cues that they give their students, nonverbal and verbal, so that the students are primed to do activities together and to, and to make connections. Like, remember this one little thing? It only takes a phrase or a gesture for them to associate two activities that might seem totally unconnected in their mind. And that's why I like having, I like creating the script. And just because then it's like, look back and forth, get ideas, and then make it your own. Mm -hmm. so. I love how you compared it to, you know, like putting on a play or an act in every class. That's, that's such a good analogy. I never thought about it that way. But it's so true. I, I mean, every music teacher listening to this has looked at lesson plans before and you're like, that's great and all. But like you said, how do I get from the warm up to teaching the song to transitioning to instruments to the music game or whatever it is, in, you know, that day? And you're looking at it like, I mean, I don't know how to how to get my kids to put the instrument back, to come to their seats, to stand up, to make a circle, to it, it is those little things that just 
they're overwhelming when you don't know how to do it. And like you said, my student teaching is where I learned <laughs> the most out of college um, was just the student teaching experience because I feel like it's just something about getting in there and observing other people. Or like you said, you provide videos that help teachers with how to teach. And in Harmony, my Harmony membership, I do that too. I provide lesson plans, but also a video with each lesson plan pack that says, this is how to do it. This is how to teach this. This is how to get the kids to go from here to here to here. And I tell that to teachers a lot too is, I get asked, which I'm sure you do too, is with classroom management, my, what I say too is keep class time moving. And when you keep class time moving a lot is when you're going to see classroom management issues dwindle. Are they going to go completely away? Of course not. But when you don't give the kids a lot of lag time between each learning objective or activity, then you're going to see them engaged more and they're not going to have an opportunity to talk to little Timmy next to them because they're constantly moving. But like you, like you said, teachers figuring out the transitions and getting from point A to G in the class period is very, it's hard. It just is. It's hard. And nobody shows you how to do that. Right. I do think that, well, of course, most of us come from a performance background. We're performers. Hmm. We, that's, that's how we think about everything that we do. And becoming a teacher is a little bit like going from reading music to being a jazz musician. And it's those transitions between courts, you know, we have to learn, even jazz musicians um, will like study the transitions between chords. Of, they'll like listen to the transcriptions. I think there's something really valuable about playing a jazz transcription and just honing in on those transitions between sections, between chord changes at the cadences so that you can see how they cue that a change is about to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that the class you've got, it's like, we've been performing all of our lives. If we can think of it like a play, then it starts to feel a little more familiar. And we're like, okay, well, if I'm improvising, I still want to have a structural plan for how to go from this activity to the next activity. And the transitions, I think, are the, they're like a huge portion of classroom management. Mm -hmm. I just had to put this out here. Um, so I'm a classically trained pianist and I just... <laughs> It just makes me laugh you talking about jazz because I, I also play clarinet, but I've also I've just done concert band and marching band. And then with piano, I tried a jazz piano lesson in college. I was like, oh, I can totally do this. I mean, like I play piano. Oh my gosh, it's a different world. And he put these chord charts in front of me and I went, what do you want me to do? And he's like, so I would just like playing the chords and he's like, no, improvise. I'm like, where's the sheet music and <laughs> just it's like it's and I love that analogy because anybody listening who has done the classical or just concert band and then you try jazz it is two different things it's I mean I feel like a musician's brain can completely relate to that and when you said that that's what made me think of that was like it's true and going from college to here's your own classroom and you're like what do I what do I do with them? What do I do with these kids all day? It's overwhelming. Yeah, suddenly you're the adult in the room. Oh my goodness, I don't know how that happened. But I mean, well, I am an adult who gets to play with puppets and make horses yeah. and stuff, so it's okay. It's like, it's good compensation for being an adult if you get to be a music teacher and an adult at the same time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the, the jazz analogy was so real for me when I hit the classroom and it just, it was like, now I'm the creator. And embracing that and just, just being like, well, I'm going to experiment 
in a little bit with a little bit less partiality and not be totally focused on doing it exactly right. Right. But I'm also going to be looking at jazz transcriptions, basically. I mean, like other people's ideas about transitions, classroom management, watching them do it. I think there's so many great teachers out there who don't know why they're great. <laughs> like mm-hmm. they do things instinctively that that help them out. Like Frank Jones, isn't he the one who wrote tools for teachers? I, I think so. Yeah. Because he just spells it out. He's like, here's the thing that great teachers are doing that they have no idea what they're doing. It was another one of those jazz transcription moments of like, oh yeah, now I see what has been invisible. And so I really do like thinking of it as, as a jazz performance or just a like an uh, audience partition, participation play where I have cues, where I have signals, where those are planned so that I feel safe enough to improvise and take advantage of the teachable moments. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to go off the lesson plan. I mean, to not follow it exactly. If you feel like your heart is, you know, turning you a different direction that day, or you want to emphasize a certain part of the lesson plan a little more than you thought you would, that's okay. It's okay to go off script a little bit. So back to the jazz analogy there. <laughs> right. What the kids really want is they want you. They want, they learn from connection. They learn through connection. And so it, I think you have to be able to follow your heart so that they can, when they feel the joy that you feel in an activity and that your willingness to, to see what happens and your willingness to listen, the connection is what makes the teaching possible. Mm-hmm. This is really interesting, but what most of what I, what most of my time ends up being is writing out scripts, like, <laughs> you know, like, or, or, and all the multimedia production that goes into one woman media company. Mm-hmm. Which but, I'm sure is so um, helpful for teachers. They don't get that a lot. Normal curriculums are just teach this. And they're like, but how? But I love that you do that. Banish, did you have the essential elements books? Mm-hmm. I think that band teachers love the essential elements and other books like those because they are used to, and well, most of the class in a band class should be going into an instrument anyway. Like you don't want to listen to the teacher for the whole hour. Right. But um, when you're teaching like younger children, they need so much more interaction, transitions, channeling them in all that young energy into into the class activity at at hand and so I think that it's really nice to have a lot more structure Mm -hmm. so what I one thing that I've done a lot of work on is writing I wrote a ukulele camp curriculum and I call it a launch curriculum because I've known people to use it for classes and stuff like that but I found it to be uniquely challenging for writing curriculum because it was more like, what if this is the only five lessons on the ukulele that this child ever receives? Mm -hmm. What do I want them to come away with? How can I pack the time together so that it is the most efficient and the most fun and the most energizing so that kids go home exhausted. How can I make the children tired? (laughs) This thing that we have together. And so those ones I tend to be, when I'm teaching a camp or a limited course, like an intro course, I tend to be a lot more regimented with my lesson plan. I mean, I don't want to leave anybody behind, 
but I also want to, I, I, that's when the challenge of classroom efficiency is a real art and that I love doing that. I love it. Love it. That's how I love to write my curriculum. Mm-hmm. So there's the creativity of being a teacher is beautiful. And I know there are great teachers who are teaching using my curriculum, but they are doing it differently. And that is great. But I also want it to be set up so that people who are beginning or who want to pack as much as they can into like a, a summer camp can just go and do it and feel awesome. Yeah, that's my goal. Yeah, I love that. I love your heart. You can just see it. Well, people can't see it, but they can hear it. And just your passion behind, (laughs) you know, what you do. And it's contagious. Um, So let's shift gears. I do want to definitely pick your brain about ukulele. Because I really think it's neat watching the way music education has changed. I mean, even from when we were kids, you know, in elementary music. But recorder, which recorder is still big in elementary music. But now ukulele, I mean... When do you feel like it took off? A few years ago? I mean, how long do you feel like it's been in the schools now? Oh, wow. You know, I'm not sure, but it does feel like it's definitely having a moment. I'm in several ukulele teacher groups mm-hmm. on Facebook, and they're growing all the time, yeah. and people are trying it out. I think that, if anything, it, it represents kind of a shift in music education values. I think that back in the day, and I could be incorrect because it's not like they teach a history of music education (laughs) in the United States. Right. Survey of music education in the United States between 1950 and today. Um, And I feel like like that would be a lot more helpful sometimes than just the music history course we had to take. I mean, let's just be honest. It does feel like we're being dropped into the middle of a story, doesn't it? Oh my goodness. So I, I just think that when music education was put in the schools, and I don't even know when that would have been, mm, like, officially placed in schools, like, there's a band program, and there's a choir program, and there's an orchestra program. I don't know what that happened, when that happened. I just yeah. know that it has existed for, for probably since the 1950s, and maybe before. Mm-hmm. Like, it would be great to find that out, but. I know, it makes me want to research yeah. that now. Yes, I, I bet there's someone out there who can tell you. Yeah, <laughs> but it feels like it was always so formal that it kind of almost came out of the military tradition. Think about it. Band comes out of the military tradition. And my greatest band instructors, and I've had a few, I mean, I went through nine different high school band directors. Oh, wow. Kind of unique. Anyway, the, but the, the ones who were the best at band, the, or at least the ones who were the most confident the most confident salesman to their students, if mm. you will. Really, it felt like being in the military a little bit. There, there were definite ways of doing things. There, were, there was a hierarchy of section leaders. There was a, an end goal of a competition or a festival or a concert. It felt very, it felt very regimented. And maybe this is just my impressions of it, but it feels like it feels like an artifact of the past. Band people, I love you. Don't stop listening. Because <laughs> I love band and I love teaching band. And I think there's so much value in experiencing what it's like to be in an organization that's working like a machine. Mm-hmm. But I do think that that can't, if we're going to have a musical culture, it can't be the only way that people experience music. Yeah. And I want, it would be my dream, like I said in my bio, my dream is for kids and families to make music at home together for fun. 
And if you're gonna do that, you're probably not gonna pull out your marching, your sousaphone. I, I, you could, but I, I feel like it's gonna be more likely with instruments that people think of as community instruments, like the ukulele. Mm -hmm. It's gonna, like the guitar. That's where a lot, if we want to have a musical society, we need to make sure that those things are happening. And I think we need a musical society, obviously. And anybody who's listening to this podcast feels the same way. Mm -hmm. It's like, we need music because people need art in order to handle life. Yeah. And so I think the ukulele holds a special place of being an instrument that is accessible price-wise, so affordable, mm. and skill-wise, and it encourages people to sing. And if, if nothing else, then those would be huge selling points for the ukulele in any school program. Yeah. So if, if people are out there and they're thinking, should I start teaching ukulele in my class? I'd be like, yes, start today. Start putting out the funding. And you don't have to use my curriculum. That's not why I'm telling you this. It's because you will find what works for you. But it's like this instrument has the power to be a lifelong instrument that they can play even when they're old and they can people of varying levels can all play it together and they do in little ukulele groups like here in Houston there's the ukuleleans and they get together once a week and they play oh I in love like that. a day so I do think that the ukulele has the potential to put music back into into personal recreation time and if we could do that then every other aspect of musical education would improve Mm -hmm. and people's lives would be. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I just thought of is when teachers are teaching ukulele in the schools, what's going to happen is when a child is excited to learn a new instrument or, you know, they show sometimes their parents what they've learned at school with, you know, dancing even or a new song, they bring the ukulele home if the teacher lets them and then mom, dad, watch what I did. And then they get curious about it. Oh, I'm kind of wanting to, that's neat. How are you learning that? And I don't know how to play this. And then it, I feel like that's a good segue into having those family musical moments. That's a great idea of, you know, you bring the ukulele home and then, you know, yeah, it just gets the parents curious about right. it. There was a time when people had the family piano and um, my family had a piano and we had, we still get together and sing and it's my favorite thing. It doesn't happen often enough, but we do it. Um, but the piano is not going to be as accessible, like in terms of, well, I mean, it's just really expensive to mm -hmm. have and maintain a piano. And it's like a pet. It's not like you just buy the piano and it's good for life. You have to, you have to coddle the piano. You have to take care of the piano. Mm -hmm. And granted, you have to do that with any instrument that you have. But the ukulele is just so much less in, inhibited. It's so less scary. People can just buy a ukulele, and even if they buy one that isn't the greatest ukulele in the world, they can start to clunk around on it, and they will eventually, they'll, I mean, like, I have standards for the ukuleles my kids show up with, mm -hmm. and, oh, and I prefer to buy them for them, but even if someone is out there just playing on a really cheap in ukulele, it's like a start. It's, it can go somewhere. I'd love to pick your brain about... Uh, a music teacher that is wanting to start doing ukulele in their music classroom. So 
what ages or grade levels do you suggest starting with? And then what, like, let's talk about like what a typical beginning lesson might look like. Would it just be involved like handing the ukuleles out, teaching them how to tune it, and then just starting with simple chords and things like that? But what do you suggest for that? That is a great question. And luckily, I have my first lesson right in front of me. Oh, but, awesome. Um, what I'm going to recommend that people do if you're thinking about teaching the ukulele in your classroom, there is this book out there, and it's by Phil Tamburino, I think is his name. Tamburino, I'm sure, is his last name. And he wrote this book called You Can Do It. Mm. U K E Can Do It. And that was the first thing that I ever read about teaching the ukulele. I, I really liked how he laid out a lot of things. He also has a method, um, and I, I also bought that, but I decided to go with, with my own thing. But he, I love his, his first volume that's just, here's the ukulele, here's how to teach basic things, and here's why. And he says in the book that a child as young as five can play the ukulele. Having experienced teaching kids basically from age five to 12 on the ukulele, I would say that kids at five, like you said, kindergarten is its own world. They, I mean, I can imagine them holding it and strumming it, but their little hands are so, so soft. Mm -hmm. And they, they just... They, they won't be happy to make any chords. So you, you're limited, I think, to very basic strumming patterns and singing pentatonic songs with the C6 chord. That's what you've got. Um, I do think that kids ages six to eight, and I, I've taught uh, quite a few mommy and me classes because all moms want to learn to play the ukulele. Like as soon as they find out, they want a, a class for adults. And I say, I don't have one yet, but someday <laughs> it's like on my list of curriculum to develop. But um, plus adults are pretty good at using apps and YouTube to figure things out when they really want to. Mm -hmm. But um, mommy and me classes ages six to eight, if they have their parent right there and they're doing it together, it, it's a really unique and special experience. I love teaching those classes and they tend to fill themselves because the moms want to be in them so bad. Like they'll bring the kid, but the, the mom is the one who wanted to take yeah. the class. Yeah. And awesome. the kid. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I find that around age eight, for some kids, even age nine, just looking at the science of like their hand development, you know, that they tend to get much stronger hands around the age of eight or nine. And then you just teach them in a way that they can, um, they can play it. So I think that um, as long as you, as long as you differentiate instruction based on where a kid's hand strength is. So basically, five-year-olds are their own universe. Six to eight with a parent right there, and then eight to twelve is their own thing, and that's where my curriculum is basically right now. Mm -hmm. And then twelve and up is like anything's possible right they, they could go do anything they really could those are great suggestions thank you so much for sharing that um the other thing I wanted to ask about ukulele is I know you've mentioned to me that learning the ukulele you learn skills that you can apply to learning other instruments as well so I would love for you to touch on that a little bit and explain that sure well I am um, I would say that my primary instrument is the flute 
my home instrument, my first instrument was the piano. The flute is my home. The ukulele is like my vacation home is where I go to have fun. And, um, but I, the ukulele can do anything. I mean, the, the sky is the limit. The great thing about the ukulele is that it condenses really difficult skills down into an instrument where kids who are young can make great big motions with their bodies when they feel the beat, for example. Mm -hmm. And they can sing along with it at the same time as they're playing a single chord, just like on the very first day of picking up the ukulele. That is the goal. It's like, mm -hmm. have them sing a song so that they begin to fall in love with the possibility of music making with the ukulele. And then the sky's the limit. Like I said, I mean, you can teach them rhythms. I love to teach strumming patterns with uh, graphic representations like clouds and, and jars. I use, I have a whole thing with rhythm jars with strumming symbols in each jar and they can, they can do anything on there. It's just another tool to get them. And so once they've, the real transferable skill is anything that they sing, they can take on to another instrument really well, right? Right. And so if we can just get kids to sing and the ukulele is perfect and they want to do it, if you're introducing literature like funny camp songs and other kids' songs like that. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. Um, I wanted to touch on one more thing about teaching the ukulele. So I know a music teacher listening to this back to the curriculum conversation um, and they're thinking, okay, well, there's so much to teach with the ukulele. How do I break it down and how long of a unit do I do it for a nine weeks? Do I spread it out through the entire school year? How would you suggest, I know someone, if I'm thinking this, someone else's too, how do they, how do they teach it in their classroom? I guess that's what I'm asking. Do they, is it as a unit, would you suggest? Huh. I actually think that it, sh it, should it could and maybe should be a year-round thing like okay. I don't want it to fall to the wayside that feels like a a wasted opportunity like if you need to teach some things before you get to it so that your classroom management is running cleanly if if that makes a teacher if they look at their community of students and feel like mm, we need a little bit of time before we introduce this whole other animal in the classroom and a whole new set of rules then, then that's, that's fine. But I feel like whatever else you're studying in music, the ukulele, I think of it more as a tool than as a single unit. Mm -hmm. It's like, if we're going to study, if we're going to study partner songs or something like that, let's sing each part with a single chord strum on the ukulele and feel the beat together with big strumming motions. You can even go crazy and make great big strumming motions and the kids think it's hilarious and yeah. that's great and then they're feeling the beat their experience it's just another tool in the repertoire and if, especially if you use it fairly regularly anytime where you're like well this class needs to do something different right now then we pull out the ukuleles and we do something familiar but in a new way on the ukulele mm -hmm. with that ukulele accompaniment so, and of course, we're all singing tons of pentatonic songs, and they're just so easy to put with a single chord on the ukulele. Mm -hmm. Ooh, and one thing I just thought of, too, was a lot of the objectives say sing with or without instruments. And a lot of times you're like, what instruments? What instruments should I have them sing with? I don't have enough xylophones in my classroom. They can't sing with a recorder in their mouth, so that's the perfect instrument 
to have them sing with an instrument. <laughs> and for the tinies, like five-year-olds, it's almost like, I just thought of this for our, for the earlier part too. Five-year-olds are in their own little world and, and somewhat into the, the first grade and, and on, but like, just depending on the child's development, if a child isn't ready to hold a ukulele, then if you have an auto harp mm. hanging around or a guitar that you can set down on a stool so that they can just strum the strings in front of them, horizontal strings like that, then that is the perfect preparatory motion to then turn it sideways in front of them and do the strings that they can't see quite as well. So I, I love things like that. That's definitely something to try with those tinies and get them excited about the ukulele for later. And you can control the buttons on the auto harp or you can control the chords on a guitar or ukulele while they're doing that. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's great ideas. I love it. Love, love that. So I would love for you to share any closing thoughts or advice you have about anything we talked about today. Okay. Well, teachers out there, I know you're doing a good job. I know you are because you really care about it. And I am impressed every day with the stuff that I see on Instagram and Pinterest. There are so many resources out there. We have a wealth of options and you're going to figure out what works for you. It's going to be great. The ukulele is awesome. And I love teaching it. It's so fun. But if you decide that instead you're going to do um, a unit on, on something else and then use ukulele as a tool, it's also just a great tool for that. Annie, let everybody know where they can find you online and how they can connect with you. Sure. My website is musicpoppins.com. I'm also on Instagram at Music Poppins and on Pinterest as at Music Poppins and Facebook as Music Poppins. So find me. I would love to hear from any of your listeners. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on today. I've enjoyed this interview so much. And I know the teachers listening are going to get so much valuable advice and information from you that they are just going to be able to implement. Thank you so much for listening in to the Elementary Music Teacher Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, I would love for you to review the show and leave a rating on iTunes. To find out more about how I can help you gain momentum in your elementary music teaching career, head to thedomesticmusician.com where you'll find free downloads, courses, the blog, and so much more. Continue teaching music and never doubt the impact you're making each and every day in the lives of your students.